वेलकम टू सन टॉक The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the varieties of punishments. We will think about punishment and its many manifestations. What does the notion of punishment assume and what is it for? Can some of its forms be made equivalent to each other? Must punishment be proportional and fit the crime? when does law punish when does reasoning work why is deterrence difficult to achieve do criminals make calculations is only the convict responsible for a crime should very few actions be considered illegal or criminal Why do death row convicts often attempt suicide? What is the future of the idea and philosophy of punishment, justice and penal systems? And would it be too costly to eliminate all crime? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Yug Mohit Chaudhary. He is a practicing criminal lawyer with a particular interest in the abolition of the death penalty and reform of criminal law. Dr. Parikshit Ghosh. He teaches in Delhi School of Economics. He specializes in game theory and applications of game theory to economic, social and political problems. and Dr Pravesh Jangole he teaches philosophy at the department of humanities and social sciences at IIT Bombay Yog why don't we set the ball rolling with you um as you think about punishment and as you go about your work on a day to day basis um is there a way in which you classify punishments is there a way in which uh, one could say that there are essentially five or six or 10 types of punishments is there such a thing as type of punishment or variety of punishment types of punishment known to law mm-hmm. are of course uh, usually fine imprisonment or execution extinction of life right but that's not the only place where in my day to day life you encounter i encounter punishment mm-hmm. like the rest of us we encounter punishment in the personal sphere with ourselves we punish ourselves sometimes for not achieving what we wanted to achieve or for failing coming below our the standards we have set for ourselves we also encounter punishment in the domestic sphere yeah where we may chastise or punish loved ones or be chastised in turn by them right and these punishments in the personal as well as in the domestic sphere are of a very different nature to the punishments we encounter in courtrooms mm-hmm and the interplay between them and the possible interplay between them is a source of much int- i think something we can learn a great deal from that how are they different punishments imposed by law don't really attempt to reason things out with the culprit the offender mm-hmm. he is a wrongdoer 
and he'll either be sentenced to imprisonment or to fine or will be subject to capital punishment. There's no real attempt to reason things through with them, find out why he offended. Whereas in the family, for example, when a child offends, there is that attempt made to find out why he did what he did, to explain to him that it's wrong. There's an element of counselling, teaching, education. That's right. And it's not just because he's a child this is possible. I believe human adults too can change. Mm. It's possible with adults. We do also reason and explain to other adults who commit offences or hurt, hurt us. But this is something which we don't ever see in the legal sphere. There's no room or space whatsoever? Not as a form of punishment. You may have counselling in very, very rare circumstances provided in correctional homes or jails as they are called. Right. But this is the exception rather than the rule. Right, right. And it's not a form of punishment. It's something that accompanies punishment. Right, right, right. And that's interesting. It always accompanies punishment. Does that in any way lessen the extent of punishment? Not at all. Not at all. No. Punishment is what is prescribed by law. You will be given that. And this is incidental. So whether or not you change, whether or not you actually realize why you have committed something wrong and that you have done something wrong is completely irrelevant to the law. So is there an incentive to reform under law? So if if I've been sentenced to imprisonment for 10 years, does it matter whether I try to change myself or not? And, 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 And... Let me put it the other way. So long as you don't really become a pain in the neck for the jailer, you'll get the remission that you deserve. And you'll be released prematurely. You'll be given certain forgiveness. You know, some sentence will, part of your sentence will be waived. Right. There's very, there are no mechanisms available to determine whether or not you've really reformed. You may say I've reformed. Right. And every prisoner in order to get some added benefit will say he's reformed. Right. But has he really reformed? We don't know. Right. And you see, reformation is sometimes a much overhyped issue because yeah. recrudescence or uh, reoffending is not as rampant as people seem to think. So why do we talk then so much about re- re- reformation? Most of the time, most of the people in prison are one-off offenders. And what about offenses which are mistakes? Is is it do, Does law look at that or do, can one look at that? Can one look at that with the lens of logic, with the lens of economics, with the lens of philosophy, with the lens of law? I don't encounter too many crimes which are committed by way of a mistake. Mm. Can you give me an example of something that you have in mind? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously you can't, and you don't end up committing murder by mistake. That would never happen because it's an act of, act of agency. Um, but there could be um, instances where you acted Rape. out of negligence. No, no. It couldn't be a mistake either. Yes, it couldn't be. Negligence, of course, is always factored in. It's a, they're, they're separate crimes for negligence. Mm. And you get lower punishments for negligence. Mm. Basically, mm. you're punished according to the level of knowledge or intention you had to commit that particular crime. Right. That forms a very essential part of the offense as well as the punishment. Right. But you should have been the cause for something. For what, what With does a law certain look level of knowledge or intention. Yeah. It cannot yeah. just be by mistake. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an offense really. Right. So there has to be an element of foreseeability. The the, 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 the person committing it in his own should mind. have foreseen yeah. in his yeah. own yeah. his or her own yeah. mind that some such a thing would happen. Yeah. Interesting. What about what about philosophy, Jung? Is there is there a certain is has a conception of punishment and other companion concepts changed dramatically over the last hundred, two hundred, three hundred, five hundred years? And 
do you see a certain arc which is somewhat predictable do you what what do you see when you and what do you think when you think of punishment as a philosopher i think uh, the idea of punishment has become cardinal uh, in the last say roughly about 300 years or so mm-hmm. uh, more specifically from the 18th century onwards there has been uh, a kind of a focused shift to try and understand punishment within philosophical discourse sure now one of the important aspects of looking at punishment is that before we uh, begin to address uh, the idea of so why was it not there before that no it was it is not what were it, the enabling factors that led to such an awareness such a consciousness arising in the first place the enlightenment the enlightenment movement primarily that made people more reflective it is not that there were no punishments prior mm-hmm. but people just did not reflect over it as critically as people started doing during the enlightenment period sure that's why the 18th century marks that that uh, the 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 distinction of the trajectory of punishment sure and uh, most of uh, the classical uh, theories of punishment that is um, uh, that that criminology or or penology today begins with so who do you have in mind people like beccari and others yeah beccari bentham right hobbes right locke of course these were much prior but and more specifically i think what happened was with the advent of the enlightenment and people really thinking about punishment people just did not think about forms of punishment mm-hmm. i think this is where uh, the real shifter happened because people started questioning the very necessity of punishment mm-hmm. why do we have punishment in the first place mm-hmm. right the the whole discussion about the forms of punishment will come about if uh, we already accept the legitimacy of having punishment so i think in this in this idea it it is very cardinal for us to uh, to get hold of this point that the most dominant thought on on philosophical lines on the notion of punishment is this that somehow we are very peculiar beings <laughs> and what do you mean because amongst the animal uh, kingdom we are the only beings who are not comfortable with what we are <laughs> See, we always want to be more than what we are now mm-hmm. whether this is a collective consciousness that has been ingrained onto us or whether it is our our natural make is 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 a question that can be raised but the sure. fact is this that we are not beings who are very comfortable with the way we are not and i am not saying who we are but what we are mm-hmm. and what 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 is that distinction for you and this i think this this leads to this demand that you must have a mechanism in order to propel you towards that movement from what you are to what you seek to become so you mean a superior moral being a superior yeah. citizen a superior meaning you you may see superiority is already a normative sure term. sure to to rip it of all normativity you just want to be slightly better it could be morally you could not see the idea that it is for moral reasons it is for societal reasons are the justificatory apparatus mm-hmm. that you th- these are apparatuses that are using to justify punishment 
Mm-hmm. But the fact that there is a necessity for this mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a very peculiar thing. Mm-hmm. So where are we on that now? Is 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 punishment necessary? I think, I think from what what we have come to understand now through through this kind of uh, very critical thought, and I'm particularly I have in mind at least people like Nietzsche mm-hmm. um, and uh, Foucault, who mm-hmm. who about a hundred years later writes sure. another classical piece on on this very idea of why there is a necessity to punish discipline and punish yeah discipline discipline yeah. and the birth of prison yeah now. Apart from the fact that there is this necessity, that there is this constant demand that we have to better ourselves, mm-hmm. there is also another allied feature which is also peculiar to us, mm-hmm. and that is we are conscious that we cannot trust ourselves to do it. <laughs> so, so you need uh, so the equivalent of a law or a state or some other principle. Or you some... would need see again the whole idea of a state or law. Again, these are apparatuses that already recognize. that you are not trustworthy so the question is that why why is it not all self regulating yes Be- because does, does does that make any sense to you yog why why don't we all self regulate i know we kind of going to in a direction which is more axiomatic than what one might like but in in this specific context is there a way of conceiving of ourselves as you know decent enough i mean not using hypernormative terms yeah. as jung pointed out or even in, even oh, a plain yeah. term like normalcy mm. you know that mm. we we want to head towards normalcy mm. so these ideas have now been debated through and through about whether what is the idea of normalcy mm. who defines normal behavior mm. Mm. right what what will what will constitute the paradigm of normality so when you bring in nietzsche and foucault you kind of bringing in the element of power and you kind of Are, are you suggesting that for there to be a society, for there to be no, I think stable? Foucault, I, my point is that I think Foucault and Nietzsche and people like them are trying to help us understand that before we can actually deliberate upon the varieties of punishment, the legitimacy of punishments, which punishments are to be given, proportions of punishment, they are trying to help us understand that first we must come to grips with the idea mm-hmm. that punishment is necessity within. a social ordered system this is this is the idea that why because of these two reasons that one we are not comfortable with ourselves we always want to be better and two you are not trustworthy enough to be left on your own to do that so for there to be a social order there would have to be some mode of meeting out punishment or disciplining you rather yes and in fact that is that is very critical and this brings us very close to what nietzsche has to say namely the idea that punishment is the modality in which we get domesticated that is we we, <laughs> we we in a way transform ourselves we tame ourselves from an animal man to a man animal sure parikshit when does punishment work and we'll we'll go back to that other question of whether the notion of society in a way presupposes or almost simultaneously gives rise to the notion of some mode of disciplining or punishing but if we park that question for a while and just go to the question of when does it work because you know there is a some kind of a companion concept of incentive uh, simultaneously right so 
what does economics have to say on that yeah so i'll i'll give you the view of my discipline sure. within economics which i don't uh, agree with 100% i think there's some useful uh, thoughts there but sure. i think i think it's also limiting so the idea within economics uh, which is uh, captured in you know if you look at this field called law and economics mm-hmm. which has emerged in the last 30 40 years um and it goes back to the work of Gary Becker of the University of Chicago who 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 sort of first pushed this view that uh the kind of So was it him or Posner? I mean please Posner came later. I think Becker sure. was the sort of first one who broke ground here and then he has collaborated quite a lot with Posner and and sure. they have together kind of extended that methodology. So uh the idea there and its intellectual roots actually go back to the utilitarian philosophers especially Bentham. Similar to what Jung was pointing out yes yeah. Yeah. and idea within economics the sort of the the conventional idea is very much the perspective of deterrence that that the purpose of punishment and and law etc is is very much to prevent people from committing harmful acts in the future so this is general purpose deterrence this is a signal to the society not necessarily to the person that's right to to potential future wrongdoers which maybe that so same individual there's a signaling angle here then. that's right that's sure. right it's you know in, in crude terms it's like setting an example if you will right so that so that people don't do, dare to do this in the future sure uh so in becker's analysis he identifies uh, kind of two broad parameters which will determine the strength of deterrence mm-hmm. and and the notion here is very much of one of degree not of uh, binary that people are either deterred or not deterred it's it's you know how many people are deterred how often are they deterred and That's to what extent of, yeah to what extent and so on and so forth so the two uh, things which he identifies is the chance of getting caught mm-hmm. and what are the damages what's the pain that uh, people are exposed to in case they are caught so mm-hmm. that could consist of fines and penalties monetary uh, punishments it could sure. consist of prison time and in in the extreme you know something like a life sentence sure so uh so and and one of the ideas in becker is that uh, again this is looking through purely through the lens of deterrence is that these two things are substitutes of each other mm-hmm. so we can you know if if we cut the resources used for checking on crimes like mm-hmm. uh, tax avoidance or breaking of uh, traffic rules for example sure uh, but if we roughly double the penalty we'll have more or less the same amount of deterrence because people are uh, you know there's a l- half the prospect of getting caught but twice the penalties that you pay and one of the arguments which becker comes up with is that society should try to lower the monitoring you know how uh, the uh, how many people are uh, checked for their taxes the how many people are and audited and maximize punishment maximize, maximize punishment or optimize because, at least yes, optimize because punishment is something which is not costly for society as a whole um whereas because it's revenue generated it gives you money that's right it's money from the wrongdoers pocket into the government's account which can be spent on other things sure. so society as a whole doesn't lose anything sure. whereas if we have to have a big army police department etc that is taking away ma- manpower and you commit to it so there is a nice angle right. of commitment that's right. which parts of this argument are relatively more problematic it makes intuitive sense but does yeah. it work is the question Yeah. and if 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 it doesn't then obviously it's not uniformly ineffective when does it work and when does it not work and why is deterrence so difficult to achieve if it is maybe it's not mm-hmm. 
um, see, there is some um, work based on evidence and data and sort of statistical analysis within economics, which um, uh, tends to suggest uh, that for certain kinds of crimes, uh, qualitatively at least, it's, it, it works. If you put more police resources or people are screened or monitored more frequently, or if the penalties are raised, then uh, the, the rate at least of that kind of wrongdoing goes down. Uh, there are sort of subtle problems in coming to that sort of conclusion because often what happens is that, you know, in a neighborhood where crime is high for mm -hmm. other reasons, mm -hmm. that's where the cops will be sent in higher numbers. Mm -hmm. So if you just look at pure correlation, you might get the opposite conclusion that where there is more monitoring, where there's more penalties, uh, that's where crime is also higher. Right. But the direction of causality <laughs> there could be coming from the other direction. So the big challenge in kind of statistical analysis of this question that, that just uh, does deterrence work uh, is is to tease out causality from correlation. So so there has been work. You know, there's a uh, some one famous work is by Stephen Levitt of uh, sure. um, economics fame yep. who looked at. Uh, uh, it, what people tend to do is to look at natural experiments where where the police were sent for some uh, some reason that we know is unrelated to the to the crime rate in the in the in that area. Mm -hmm. So if you study natural experiments, and he studied one in Argentina, he found that where police presence went up, so people had a higher chance of getting caught as they're breaking into cars and mm -hmm. committing burglary or some things like that. The crime rates did actually fall. Right. Uh, but I, I do think my belief that, is so that... So Becker would yeah. say that the same thing could have been achieved by increasing the amount of fine or... That's true. Right. Yeah. Right. But, right. Uh, you know, there are studies like this which kind of bring some confirmation that at least in certain, some domains, people are uh, responsive to both of these factors. Is fine the ultimate punishment? Because it doesn't... It, it seems like a variable that has infinite elasticity, but you, you can't have a fine of a billion dollars, right? Yeah. So, in in some ways, it's self-limiting. I mean, if, if if my net worth is a million dollars, there's nothing that a two million dollar fine does does to me. I can't take away what I don't have. Yeah, yeah. So the stock question of an economist, and again, I'm putting on uh, a hat sure. over here, right? Sure. I, I, uh, You're welcome to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the stock question of an economist. See, uh, the the economist view about punishment is a, very forward-looking. Uh, and this I would contrast with the sort of more deontological perspective that every crime uh, deserves a sort of a retaliatory measure either by the individual or society. So the, the to, Kantian kind of point, the more retributive yeah. justice point where you go after the criminal and treat that as a situation. In, in your case, there would be always an embedded deterrence for the future. Is, is, is that the idea? The justification for punishment that the economists will give is... Uh, uh, bygones are bygones. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe somebody was even killed, but we uh, that person won't return right. if we behead somebody, uh, execute somebody else. Uh, so that can't be the justification. Sure. But unless we punish, then you know this sort of behavior will will continue. So we need to discourage this. So it's sure. forward looking in in that sense. Sure. And in that same kind of pragmatic vein, an economist will say that look. Uh, fines are better as punishment than imprisonment mm -hmm. because imprisonment involves loss of liberty, loss of labor power, and nobody else gains. Somebody goes to prison, there's no gain to anybody else in society. Whereas if the punishment is in the form of a fine, that... That money can be put into, you know, repairing the potholes. And that person is free, so that person is a, 
it continues to be an economic agent continues That's to right. be the continues to be productive continues to have personal liberty and so on and then the you know the there the final line there would be that uh, of course not everybody has the resources you commit a very serious crime mm-hmm. even if you take away all your wealth mm-hmm. it's not enough punishment to deter you mm-hmm. and then we have to add on these quote unquote inefficient forms of punishment by imprisonment and so on yeah we'll get back to the question of equivalence which is an interesting question mm-hmm. here where you try to but I, coming to you yog is fine a good idea and i want to link it to the question of deterrence as well if you think it makes sense could i answer that question and also respond please. to something that parikshit said please when you focus too much on deterrence mm-hmm. as the object of punishment mm-hmm. you may make punishment effective from that point of view mm-hmm. for example by increasing the punishment reducing your monitoring your expenses sure. but in, by increasing the punishment you hope to achieve the same deterrence or greater deterrence sure but you may not make punishment just and perhaps you may make it unjust so what is just so when punishment is disproportionate to the crime mm. to mm. begin with mm. if the harm caused by punishment far exceeds the harm actually caused by the crime mm. it would become unjust so which means that the so once once yeah. if punishment becomes unjust law loses its efficacy right. people will not have confidence in the law That's beautiful. And it's it is going to break down over there. That's a beautiful point. So you point. may try and make punishment as effective and super effective by uh, ramping up the punishment. But then you don't people lose confidence in the law and if people stop supporting the law your system breaks down. Right. So right. you may try and increase deterrence by increasing punishment but what happens if it becomes disproportionate? You can't take punishment to any extreme. For example, you could achieve complete deterrence by punishing not only the offender but his family his teachers sure his friends sure and you then get a crime free society sure. perhaps sure. or you can move closer to getting a crime free society through that than to any other form of but punishment but intuitively that's unjust it's unjust it's unfair yeah and you would not and would it be a free society yeah so there is going to be a trade off over here one can't just sit, you know look at this the way becker did perhaps mm-hmm. and saying ramp up the punishment never mind whether it's proportionate or not proportionate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also there's the question of the sting now that comes to the fine aspect you see you can't tailor make punishments for particular individuals so you have a, for example the offense an offense x punishable with 5 years imprisonment and or 50000 rupees fine yeah now a rich man 50000 rupees fine is not going to hurt him at all yeah a poor man it may hurt him much more than 5 years imprisonment yeah 5 years imprisonment on the other hand may hurt both equally Yeah. So there is that aspect about you know you can't let people just buy their way out of yeah punishment yeah. by yeah. reducing everything to a fine. Yeah. So not all punishment can be fines. We're obviously yes. out of the territory of capital punishment. So yes. you, you can't pay your way out of something. In many regimes you can even pay your way out of capital punishment through blood money. Mm. <laughs> mm. So you just compensate the victim's family enough and then no capital punishment for you. But if you want, if one, if one were to ask the opposite question, Yog, of when does deterrence work? So you made this interesting point of there having to be the strong belief or conviction of society at large that this is just. So there is widespread compliance and trust and faith and all of that. Um, but are there other aspects that are necessary for? Two of them were mentioned by Parikshit from Becker. Uh-huh. There's severity of punishment. Uh huh. 
the certainty of punishment mm-hmm. and the third is the swiftness of punishment the celerity of it the celerity of punishment right and all three have to coexist together for it to work now simply ramping up one in the absence of the other two is not going to make punishment effective or deterrence effective so you're saying that if there were to be fine but if it if it's going to take 10 years for it to be levied on me and if cares? it's levied on one in 50 offenders it's not going to deter you the prospect of the fine sure so or if it's going to come after 20 years you'll say who has seen 20 years you know 20 sure. years we don't know what's going to happen in 20 years i'll take the risk of the crime of committing the crime so all three have to be there for punishment to be effective but my own experience is that severity is not really necessary because i think after a certain threshold of imprisonment you know you achieved you would have achieved what you wanted to in terms of threat you mean we don't have that kind of you horizon you don't need heavy punishment i mean this punishment of 20 years 25 years 30 years i just it doesn't work beyond a certain point i think 7 years 10 years 15 years if if 14 15 years is not going to deter a person from committing an offense 25 years is not going to deter him anymore <laughs> anymore so right beyond that it just becomes sadistic that's an interesting point that's an interesting point why what where, where are you on this jung on on this question of fine and i know we're pulling you on a in in a territory which is probably more economic than no, philosoph- this, philosophical this is, uh, this is absolutely uh, a very interesting uh, facet which was uh, just pointed out by yogya mm. namely that the idea of deterrence uh, pivotalizes the idea of utility yeah uh, because now you are treating punishment not merely in relation to a particular act of a particular agent so the the whole calculative process of what the punishment ought to be mm-hmm. has a whole new added dimension mm-hmm. and this dimension is of what utility will it be to the society right Now, right th- this is primarily the benthamian uh, idea of of Correct. what what it ought to do i will will get back to that but the other facet that that one must keep in mind is that even during this enlightenment period where you are having these reforms uh, primarily after people like beccaria who who promotes this idea of you know the three elements of punishment that it must be severe it must be proportionate it must it must occur in due time sure. so on and so forth even during that period you still have people like kant you know who who is adamant on the fact that you cannot bring in the element of utility in so far as punishment is concerned to so treat every person as an end in itself yes, and not but, as a means yes but but the crux of the matter is is what just you just pointed out namely if you treat the individual and punishment gets related to the betterment of the society then you are on a slippery slope because <laughs> some yeah. unjust punishment may just be very good for the society so your punishment is justified but the whole apparatus namely the legal system which executes that is itself unjustified so for people like kant the moment utility creeps into the idea of punishment you are on a slippery slope and this slippery slope will lead you down to 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 a kind of a devastating social uh, a contradiction so so, so so what what is the most extreme manifestation of the slippery slope uh, jung what would happen in the very long run if if one were treating everything in a super utilitarian way you would have you you would not have any free agency 
except the agency of the state so what do you mean so that would mean that at at a, right now we if if we believe in a just society mm-hmm. then i ought to believe mm-hmm. within the framework of a punishment that mm-hmm. if i do something wrong then the punishment is for the wrong that i have done right and that is what the question of proportion as yug is emphasizing comes about right because it must be proportionate to the wrong that i have done now if you miss that aspect out then what happens is if i am a wrong doer i become a kind of an avenue for the betterment of the society as such the setting an example question yes, in a way yes. right 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 so th- that is why but we must be we must be clear that that people like bentham were very very aware of this aspect mm. and therefore bentham believes mm-hmm. uh, at least in his later works that the only way in which you can uh, 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 avoid the deterrence uh, 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 meaning bring about deterrence is through self regulation so what do you do so this look at this interesting uh, you know uh, analogy that he that that is operating here sure not that bentham draws upon it but we can now see that uh, an analogically see why do religious people fear doing certain acts right why do religious people fear doing certain acts and the answer is because by and large we believe that we are being watched Mm-hmm. and this simple idea that we are being watched brings us this awareness that what acts are done not to be done so on and so forth so you substitute that through an act of self regulation yeah that that's the uh, meaning the most exemplified in his uh, constructed panopticon right yeah so, so yeah. these ideas uh, become very crucial so you know deterrence so the, the gaze could be of god which yes, is for for, for a religious person or it could be of the state for a compliant citizen or precisely of... till the time so so the point is where does it where, where do we stop this where does this process stop will it ends you know when the self can convert itself that as an individual i become my own watch guard that's when you know that's the ideal society you are heading towards sure that, that's the idea that you have so that's right? closer to the self regulating mechanism yes, in a but, sense but mm-hmm. as i told you this contradicts the very idea of punishment because we are peculiar beings <laughs> <laughs> you see whether yeah. we can ever arrive at that level of trustworthiness is is a very very cardinal question parikshit does the does the marginal deterrence angle play a role here in the discussion that we're having absolutely uh can i uh, backtrack and talk yes. about a couple of things and then i'll come to your question Please. about marginal deterrence uh one is as i said you know i was pretty much uh wearing the economist hat when i described the but, uh, but deterrence you qualified argument. it by saying that you were wearing a hat and you don't yes. agree 100% yes. with that so i i do believe there is uh some value in in looking at it uh with with deterrence as one of the motives uh if you if you look at the sort of uh, retributory or uh backward looking just that that every uh, harmful act done to one's fellow citizens deserves something in turn you know i mean uh, so eye for an eye kind of perspective equal harm yeah equal so, harm to be inflicted right. right so there are two aspects of which one i like of this other deontological view that that punishment is for with with an eye to the past as as uh, something which is deserved for for bad things which were done in the past the good thing about it is there is strong value placed on the treatment of innocence 
right? It it creates a sort of strong reason to safeguard the you know mistaken convictions, mistaken punishments, right, and so on and so forth. So that's right. as as you know from a liberal perspective, that's a good thing, but it also sort of institutionalizes vengeance. Let's yeah. let's put it that way, yeah. right? So this is the other half of the you know glass yeah. that that we are we are coming up with a sort of a, a rationalization of inflicting harm for its own sake uh, whereas from that perspective you know uh, trying to prevent harm in the future sounds to me a little bit of a you know more of a there's a liberal flavor in in that of course it runs into several problems you know one is uh, why not punish you know if if necessary why not punish families friends and so on in fact i would argue that you know there is an element of it uh, in practical terms in our in our judicial practice because for many many crimes uh, most people are not uh, caught so part of the part of the penalty you know tax evasion if you take it the rate of auditing that we have in most societies is uh, way less than 20%. You know, I don't know what the kind of numbers are. So when somebody is caught, you know, uh, cheating on taxes, we are basically part of the uh, penalty which is imposed is with the remaining 80% in mind. People <laughs> people who haven't been caught, right? It's right. to send a, send a signal to them. Now, to what extent do we want to push it? Now, there I would say the following. See, uh, let me give an analogy. Uh, democracy, we all talk in lofty terms about democracy, right? But democracy has to be constrained. We have things like the Bill of Rights. Right. There are individual rights, there are uh, uh, minority rights. So the idea of democracy that we subscribe to is a constrained version of, it's not pure majoritarianism, right? So one can take the deterrence perspective and, you know, this is the way I would perhaps uh, like to approach it within my discipline. Talk about what are the justice-based or deontological constraints we would like to place. Mm -hmm. That we want to apply the deterrence logic, but only within a limited space, right? And 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 respect some other some other views. Now you asked me the question about uh, marginal uh, marginal deterrence. So the marginal deterrence is this idea of proportionality, actually. Yes. But derived entirely within the uh, within the deterrence perspective. Right. If you're coming at from it uh, at it from a deontological or justice pr perspective, there you're. It's it's almost axiomatic that you know, for for a minor crime, somebody shouldn't pay a very heavy price. That's mm. a given. Mm. Uh, it, within the deterrence perspective, that's not a given. If we can come up with an instrumental argument that you know, for for jaywalking, people should be uh, imprisoned for life, then well. That's what the conclusion is within the framework. <laughs> so what will happen is if you start imprisoning people yes. for life for jaywalking, people may not jaywalk; they simply commit murder. <laughs> because you still get you still get uh, life yeah, so sentence for murder, uh, or you'll commit robbery and benefit a great deal. Is you see, if if a greater crime then is punished, then used to be grading. Then used to be grading. That's right. Or, because yeah. why not go for the greater? Why do the lesser if you're going to get the same punishment as the greater? <laughs> that kind of trade-off might come up. Sure, so if you sure. if you if you have life sent, uh, if if you have um, death penalty for bank robbery, then it incentivizes the bank robber to shoot the clerk to eliminate witnesses. Right. Right. What is interesting about that is you're reaching this proportionality idea as a conclusion. That you know, there are seemingly this very disparate. Uh, How does one of, establish that? How does one establish what is proportional punishment? Of course, once you have a bunch of data points and you iterated over this over hundreds of years, then it becomes an exercise in 
benchmarking. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you were first thinking about it in the 17th century, and you wanted to decide how to punish yeah, but, robbery or shoplifting but, but, or the but equivalent, you, what do you, you do? You see, we will also have to keep keep uh, another significant aspect in mind here. Mm-hmm. That is, from the 18th century onwards, there is there is a shift in which uh, the way in which you relate punishment with crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the 18th century onwards, you are not merely talking of the criminal. You're also talking of the crime. Right. It's only when you start talking about the crime in relation to punishment that you get the idea of proportion. Else there is simply the criminal and the punishment for that criminal. So there are... So for the idea of gradation, therefore... The shift from the criminal but, to the but crime... But Jung, are you saying that the criminal is abstracted away and one looks only at the crime? Is that the case? Well, no, you no, can, right? that, that would be slightly uh, slightly exaggerated. Sure. But one can surely say that from the 18th century onwards and more prominently uh, within the 19th, there is definitely a shift, a very definitive shift from from relating punishment to the criminal vis-a-vis relating it to a crime. Separating sin from the sinner, separating yes, crime from the criminal. And, and, and there so is on. a very interesting idea which, mm-hmm. which I would like to float here as to why why this, this emerges at that juncture. Right. See, because by that time, you have a very strong science of causality. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have started thinking almost amongst all the domains of scientific inquiry in terms of causations. Right. So you're looking at causal patterns, right? So you're looking at causal patterns and the effect. Yeah. Right. So so that that causal chain, you know, the whole talk of, you know, what motivates, what are the factors. Yeah. So when you're bringing all of this issue, what you're doing is you're trying to bring forth a very, very scientific, systematized idea of the causal relation between the cause of the crime, the crime, with the criminal as a factor. Is this a factor at all, Yug? I mean, do you think of uh, the fact that it's not merely this criminal which has committed this crime, but there are potentially other causes? I think a just system would try and understand why this particular person committed this crime. That doesn't really happen. But I think a truly just system would try and do that. That would allow you to take both the crime as well as the criminal into account when fashioning a punishment. And that punishment would then be an individualist punishment to cater to the particular case. And that would then serve the aims of punishment, which is not only to deter, but also to reform. Nobody really speaks of reformation. In fact, reformation gives a greater benefit to society. It adds another member to society, a contributing member to society. Reformation has a great deal to recommend it, but there's very little talk of reformation because there's a great deal of bloodlust and desire for retribution. But to come back to this, if you actually try and put both the crime and the criminal into focus Mm -hmm. and try and tailor the punishment to suit both, Mm -hmm. because if you don't try and understand both, for example, you try and punish only the crime. So you have a crime of robbery. A rich man may commit robbery for certain reasons. A poor man may commit robbery for very, very different reasons. And if you don't understand those reasons, how are you going to adequately punish it? Yeah, yeah. But how does law encode this? I mean, does it, does it, law is for crime, right? It's not for criminals. So by introducing the element of discretion in the sentencing, 
So the law may give a range of zero to seven years for a right. particular crime. Right. And it's at this stage of sentencing that the judge would. So it's not be, a specific number. It is up to the judge. That's the problem with fixed term sentences when there is no discretion. Mm-hmm. This is the problem. Mm-hmm. The judge has no discre- uh, He has nothing at his command to tailor the punishment to the crime. And and what are these fixed term sentences? Minimum seven years or minimum life. There's, the judge has no discretion to that tail- must be for some extreme sorts you, of crimes you, unfortunately we are having more and more minimum term sentences oh for mm. example prior to nirbhaya mm-hmm. earlier there was a minimum 7 before mm-hmm. nirbhaya mm-hmm. it was minimum 7 mm-hmm. but the judge had the discretion to give less than 7 right after now nirbhaya the with the outcry against sexual offenses <laughs> that discretion has been taken away from the judge now for example you can think of many rape cases which deserve a high punishment or which are on one extreme. But you can also think of many cases which are technically rape. Absolutely. Which are at the other extreme. Right. Right. And for example, suppose some uh, 18-year-old, 19-year-old man has eloped with a 17-year-old girl. Yes, it's technically... Yeah. It's technically rape. Yeah. But he has the judge has no discretion. Yeah. Do criminals calculate... And I know there is no, it's not like there is one stereotypical criminal which which you can model your answer to or on, but... It depends also on the type of crime. Generally, is, I would have said no, but what about tax offenders? Don't they calculate? Yeah. And perhaps they do, I don't know. But the ones I've represented don't seem to be the calculating types. <laughs> and because there is, there is this assumption of rationality. There's this assumption of being able to calculate that a wide range of scenarios. That is unav- unavoidable. There's another very interesting assumption which is underlying this whole deterrence theory. And that is he's an autonomous human being. What does that mean? He he is he can act out of, of his, his own free will. Of his own free will, he is not a product. He is not being pushed into crime. Now, for example, take a man who is educated but poor, who can't get a job, maybe because he's a Muslim. Sure. What what are the options? His options are far fewer than mine. Sure. I may have had the same level of education, but being from a majority community, being from a relatively wealthy background, I would have a lot of opportunities open to me which should not be open to him. Yeah. Now, if he was to take to crime, it would be a more of a means of survival. Yeah. Were I to take to crime, it would be very little, very quite unpardonable. Yeah. So there is a great when I say there is no justification, but you have to understand what has pushed him into crime. Yeah. And therefore, can you say we both of us are equally autonomous when we take to crime? It was a free. It we were both acting on our free will. Suppose he had a dying mother who needed hospitalization, needed money urgently. He had no one to turn to. No bank would give him a loan. Whereas if I'm in a situation like that, I have many places I can turn to get to get money. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Why don't we change tracks just a little bit, uh, Parikshit, and come to you. Is there any room for thinking rigorously about aspects like mercy, aspects like pardon at all? Does it make sense? Would people like Becker or Posner even think of situations like those or they would be in the revenue maximization mode? Or... If you if you take the classical kind of framework which uh, Becker, Posner, etc. have have used, there's no room for that. But but um, um, I I do think there is uh, room to you know I mean the the framework can be expanded and and some of these and not just for petty crime. Right. 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 Uh, see, I I will kind of you know I think the I will subscribe to the idea that people are responsive to uh, degree of punishment etc. for a large 
set of crimes, right? Uh, they are not the only things they take into consideration. There's a there's a difference between saying that it's all about some sort of monetary con calculation. That's obviously false, right? Sure. But uh, uh, does the chance of getting caught, does the number of years in prison, you know, does it affect my behavior in some way? Well, I, it almost certainly does. Uh, almost certainly does, except it's not the only thing, right? Then there are many other other kind of things to to consider. Uh, so sure. it can be extended, and uh, you know, there's a uh, the one uh, research project which I did, uh, uh, which you mentioned uh, sure. to me in earlier conversation. That's the sort of thing that I was trying to do mm. to bring in both deterrence and uh, some sort of just deserts argument and combine them and to ask, you know, what what are the implications of that? What kind of uh, legal system should we design if we give some weight to to both of these uh, motives of formulating punishment and the law? So the, it's it's possible to do. I think the the law and economics field is uh, hasn't taken too many bold steps in that direction yet. That's interesting. And uh, yes, yes, Joe. I I think again um, bringing the the discussion to uh, at, at the beginning of this. I think uh, cardinal to to all these positions that we are holding is. Is this idea, and you raise this question that uh, are they calculative? Yes. Are, are criminals calculative? Yes. The, the fact of the matter is that without that assumption, without that assumption, punishment would largely not make sense at all. <laughs> be because you you are assuming you want people to be calculative. Not you want people to be calculative. It's not a question of want. You begin by assuming that they are that they are. What is it to say that somebody is calculative? In in minimal terms, it is to say that, that you can reflect that yes. you are a rational being. Yes. Right. And you, if you take that away, well, then uh, th there's nothing much. Now, now the other point that I, <laughs> then you're assuming that the society is insane. Yes, so, and yeah. or or you are basically mechanical beings. Of course, yeah. we must be cautionary here sure. because the idea of autonomy and freedom has become a much vulgarized term. Yeah. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that this is a fundamental assumption that we would have to take. And look at the other aspect. See, uh, when Yug was emphasizing this aspect, that how, how you ought to bring in the idea of both the crime and the criminal in terms of the causalities that, that operate. Sure. Now, law has accepted it these days. That is why you find the testimony of a doctor or, or a criminologist or a criminal psych psychiatrist so very pertinent to, to the very evaluation of the crime, the punishment, and so on and so forth. But is the individual and the society at odds in this construct? Is it, should the state or whatever supra body you think of, is there any incentive for them to maximize autonomy? No, the question is not... See, the question is not whether you can maximize autonomy. Autonomy is not in degree. Mm -hmm. Autonomy is an absolute state. Either you are autonomous or, or you are you're not. not. That's see, interesting. I, I often give this analogy that it's like pregnancy. You cannot be pregnant in degrees. Either you are pregnant or you are not. Sure. So sure. the question, therefore, the point is not whether can state provide more autonomy. Mm -hmm. The point is you are already autonomous. That's the assumption. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, what you choose to do with that autonomy is where the state will have a role to play. Yeah. So if you take your autonomy to extremes, 
then the state will have mechanisms to ensure that you don't do that. Right. 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 And that is why the question of, of, of harmonizing each autonomous being becomes a, a cardinal problem. And it is only in this understanding that we can actually talk of uh, punishment as being calculative, causal, so on and so forth. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That and and I think sense. this is yeah. cardinal, at least, at least within within the the framework of economics and and law. Because until and unless you grant that rationality, there will be no calculations. <laughs> so there is no point of strategy, formulations, reflection. Nothing will be there. Why don't we spend the last uh, seven, ten minutes thinking about the future? And as we think of penal systems, and clearly it's not a fixed, constant thing, right? I mean, you've spoken about how things may have changed from the 17th, 18th century onwards. And as, if we roll the clock forwards, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, um, do you see do you see inflection points ahead? Does junctions ahead? Is 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 are, are penal systems, or for that matter, even even the more personal, familial realm, which you started with, uh, um, you know, are they likely to be very different? What's the future of our notions of punishment? I think the law is definitely going to change in terms of what it punishes. Today, for example, homosexuality is punished, even consensual homosexuality. Sure. So, of course, that will, I'm sure, change. Sure. But other things will come up that the law will punish which are not there today. So the objects of uh, the prescribed acts, the nature of acts that are prescribed, those I think of course will change. Sure. What about things more now conceptual? Now the familial realm, uh, yeah. you know, the types of punishment. For example, corporal punishment was de rigueur when I was in school. <laughs> you mean getting caned? Yeah, it was de rigueur, normal. <laughs> now it's banned. That has changed. I think we'll did you think at that moment that it would be banned sometime in the future? Well, we did not think that it was wrong in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> we, we never thought. And so was neither, it, neither did our parents, meaning. Was, I, it, was it punishment to begin with then? I don't know. It, mean, well, it, it was. It, it definitely it was. It was physical punishment, yeah, but maybe. Yeah, yeah. But, but we never knew it was wrong. And I don't think at least my parents, they would encourage the teachers and but if it does any mistake... But now do think they are, I mean, this yeah. is wrong. And schools, Precisely. many schools have banned it. Precisely. So there has been this change. Right. Now, now even a, a child may have this perception that it's wrong. But right. If you're asking us, did we have, did we think it was wrong? No, there's no question about <laughs> it being wrong. You didn't like getting slapped, but you didn't think it was wrong. Sure. I think punishments will be there. I think the, nat- the varieties of punishments... Is, is, is a crime-free... Punishment-free society, um, correspondingly crime-free society possible. Can I comment on that? Yes. Uh, see, this is I. I was kind of thinking of uh, jumping in on on this particular thing. You know, we we keep t- talking about deterrence versus uh, retribution, etc. Sure. These are sort of well-worn perspectives. Sure. Uh, there's there's another perspective for punishment, and and I think we have to uh, just to make a digression. You know, this prison industrial complex which we have, talking yeah. about what's normal and what's abnormal. Right yeah. now, we are shocked that you know children could be slapped around. Yeah. I think this prison industrial complex that we run today, which seems very normal because it's tucked away from our uh, line of vision. 
vision. Yeah. Uh, 100 years from now or 200 years from now, we'll, we'll be aghast at what we do to our fellow human beings, even those who have committed terrible acts, right? Yeah. We, are, we are caging people like animals and taking away their basic liberty. Uh, and, and we are normalizing it as part of, you know, maintaining social order. Uh, I mean, I, zoo, I, zoos are breaking down, but prisons continue to stay right. private. <laughs> that's right. I'll, I'll just refer to this film by Roman Polanski mm-hmm. called um, uh, Death and the Maiden after mm-hmm. the Wagner opera. And the storyline is basically it's post-Pinochet Chile. Mm-hmm. And Sigourney Weaver plays this character who was captured and tortured because she was an activist. Mm-hmm. And she was raped. Mm-hmm. And there's a guest who comes to her house. She mm-hmm. and her husband, they're there. Uh, who is taken shelter from a storm. And Sigourney Weaver's character thinks that this was her tormentor, her rapist. Right? Mm-hmm. And the guy denies it. Mm-hmm. So the whole film is about this interaction she's pushing him to admit and he's denying it in the end he confesses when he she's threatening to push him over a cliff right he turns around and he confesses right and then she walks away she doesn't even slap him right and i think the idea there is a big part of justice maybe to to make the perpetrator face what he has done right maybe that's the we biggest saw punishment that in south africa yeah. And it worked very well in South Africa. The, tr- the truth committees. Yes, yeah. truth yeah. and reconciliation. Yeah. I think the be- so, you, so this is what? This is guilt at work? This is I just, think so. Just, I just, think so. Just you realization? Know, sh- See, they're clearly no, at the very extreme. It's also the threat extreme. of violence. Let's be very clear about that. It's the threat of violence. She's about to push him over the cliff when he confesses. That's the trigger for why that happens. Actually, uh, yes. But yes, and it's, the trigger is really what's so important. But what, what we saw in South Africa was without the threat of violence. I mean, that right. was again. So it shows that it is even possible without the threat of violence. I'm sorry, I didn't mean so to. Then the, right. So are you are you making a point, Pariksha, that the moral dimension is central and essential? So if, if it becomes entirely calculative and I think proportionate are, and all yeah. of that, but there is no moral event in, in, I think, in, within I think the one, person. You know, in, in, in most frameworks, cutting across disciplines, one thing which is not emphasized enough is the truth-finding aspect of justice. Right. The starting point of justice is the truth is contested. Right. Right. This guy says not guilty. And just the pro- just finding the truth, I think, is a very big... I, I, I'm not sure I want to go to the extent of saying that that's where uh, should justice end. should end and right. we should abolish punishment altogether. But I think... Uh, it it deserves to be taken much more seriously, and and you know all this throwing people in jail and all of this. So, do you I think, think we we'll punish fewer and fewer things in hundred, two hundred, three hundred years later? I'm not sure about the prospects. Are we headed in that direction? Well, I mean, if we look around, you know, uh, the the way. Uh, so, is the uh, is the current tendency more expansionary? You, yeah. Are we are yeah. we looking to punish more and more yeah. things? But is that because of this more Beckerian idea of just looking I th- to... I would blame both perspectives. This, right. this idea that, you know, uh, an eye for an eye, that uh, every harmful act deserves something to be, to, to as a compensation. And also that, you know, let's ramp up on, on all kinds of punishments to... But actually there's a third aspect to that as well. It's also the role of the state coming into your kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing what meats you have in your fridge. How much is the state willing to control and regulate your activities? That we are seeing that expanding state increasingly. Yeah. And hence the greater number of proscribed acts through penal laws and punishments. Over to you, Jung. Um, is, and you know, I want to go back to this question, we, which was a remark a while ago of any form of punishment or any act of that nature, should it try to have an accompanying moral event in, 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 
within the person, the convict, the the being. Does does it need to be accompanied by realization or well, until an until recent times, which is to say, until the rise of positivistic legal systems, you know, morality and religiousness have always been clubbed with the justification of uh, a penal system. So you punish because there are moral reasons for punishing. You punish because there are some religious basis for punishment. It's only with the rise of positivistic sciences have we moved away from this idea. And there is a very strong uh, uh, kind of an argument that you have to keep uh, a legal system out of out of moral uh, systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, however, it is, I think, important for us to understand how the society itself is heading. Right. And as as... First, to the question, do you see punishment vanishing or or a punishment-free society? And a crime-free society, correspondingly. Or you may have a little bit of crime, but no punishment. See, crime-free can be given, at least on a personal level, I can give a straightforward answer. No, you cannot have a crime-free society because what is a crime is defined by society. (laughs) <laughs> so as long as you have a society, there will be demands of normalcy and there will be deviation and there will be transgression. That's so you will have crimes. That's fair. But you can have a society which which is so self-resilient that it can ignore, pardon, right. give it grace. So right. you may have a punishment-free society. But keeping that question aside, I think the more important question that we would really have to address is what is the idea how do this triad of the crime, the criminal, and the society see itself together? Mm-hmm. See, today, the focus of punishment, I, I, to me it appears, is gradually shifting now from the, the criminal to the society as a whole. What you know, does that mean? So, the needs of society rather than the needs of the particular yes, okay. person. Right, right. And it's being done for the society as opposed yeah, to or, for... Or, 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 even the very idea of what constitutes a crime is done within the larger purview of the societal concerns. But that would always be the case, wouldn't it? Well, it... When at least the definitional why part it of it... Be, the, for example, 370 homosexuality. Who is... You see... Sure. So if it's consensual homosexuality, what business does society have to object to it? Sure. But here, because it offends some social yeah. mores no. or morals... It's been prescribed. So, so here, here is um, the real uh, confusion that I, I most of the time deal with. It is this: when it comes to punishment, which is, which is, so technically speaking, what is punishment? Punishment is making you forcibly responsible. That is not to say to make you forcibly responsible, but to enforce that that awareness that you are responsible. Right. Right. So, it's in a sense an awareness of a duty towards the society right as far as punishment is concerned but the societal incentives that we look for on the other hand do not seem to be societal so on the one hand we are moving towards an era of individualism yeah so everybody wants what is rightfully theirs and yeah. so on and so forth but your penal system as far as punishment goes is not individual at all it is it in fact it's further away from of course, as as Yug was pointing out, uh, you know, some time back, that maybe because the costs are too high to to make it such individuate. Yeah, it cannot be personalized. Yeah, to a very large True, extent. But then, so there needs to be an element of yeah, generality. But then we do not like general freedom, do we? 
<laughs> when it comes to expressions of freedom we we would like it to be personal yeah to be situated within ourselves yes yeah, we, 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 we would not be content with a general idea of freedom sure right so i think uh, we we need to move towards you know this more non generalized forms of understanding of the relation between the crime and and the punishment and so on and so forth sure 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 Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Thanks.